Welcome everyone to School Nutrition Dietitian. We've made it a full year. That's one year of podcasting officially under my belt. Moving into the new year, I am going to be shifting some things around. The major change is that I'm going to move from a weekly production schedule to bi-weekly. So instead of there being an episode every Thursday, it'll be every other Thursday. That'll be starting this week. So next week, you can enjoy a replay or something from the archives. I've really been feeling called lately to focus more on employee wellness programs and a couple of other projects. So I'll still be out in the world creating content. Don't worry. Of course, you can always check out the main website to see what some of those other projects are. One of the biggest ones I'm super excited about is called Body Liberation for All. And that podcast is going to be focused all on body neutrality. The body positivity movement doesn't resonate with me as much because it has issues with inclusion. And then also because of how complex a lot of people's relationships are with their body, being super happy about the body that you're in all the time is not achievable for some people. And I don't really believe that that's necessary. I don't have a really positive relationship with my height. It is neither here nor there. It is what it is. I literally never worry about it, but I don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to convince myself that being 5'4 is the bee's knees. Like what? It's just neutral. My show is going to address some of those philosophical differences that I have with the movement, but it's also going to be very BIPOC and LGBTQIA focused because those are the communities that I belong to and am most passionate about serving. So if that resonates with you, be sure to check that out and subscribe. You'll get access to a magical body liberation playlist. If you sign up for the mailing list, I will put that link in the show notes. So let's move on to today. We have Cordalis from the African Pot Nutrition on the show. So often we hear about international foods and different flavor profiles becoming popular, and oftentimes Africa is really overlooked. So today we have a registered dietitian and someone who has had the experience of both living on the African continent and uh, going to school for dietetics and nutrition here in the U.S. So she has a very unique perspective. And one of her passions is helping people improve their health outcomes that are from Africa through the use of traditional foods that maybe some people have started to neglect because Western foods are more often featured in health education literature and showcased as healthy foods. So this is a really interesting conversation. I asked a lot of questions that in hindsight don't seem informed that reveal how limited my knowledge is of certain starches, but it was a really educational conversation and I know you'll get a lot out of it as well. Okay, let's get right in. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Woo. 
coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dahlia. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I really thought it'd be interesting to have someone on who has done a lot of work around African food culture and healthy eating from the African perspective and looking at the African diaspora also, because I keep hearing that school nutrition is making an effort to make sure their menus are diverse and inclusive and people are looking at more international flavors, trying to appeal to our students that are more adventuresome, but also trying to appeal to our students that have moved here from other places or who are second, first generation, I mean, Americans who want to taste some traditional flavors when they eat out. But I haven't heard anyone say anything about African flavors. I only hear people talking about maybe Spanish-speaking immigrant populations, maybe a tiny little bit of Indian cuisine has been mentioned, but I haven't heard anything about Africa. So I thought you would be the perfect person to have on. Oh, wow. Thank you. And we're talking about my favorite type of food, too. So I'm excited to have this conversation because I think it's certainly an important one to have, and especially if we're trying to be more inclusive of everybody that eats. Right. And I know in the Atlanta area, I live fairly close to Atlanta, there is a significant African population. But because just the way people don't really... (laughs) I don't know the right way to phrase this. Not everybody realizes how many different countries there are in Africa. Obviously, people should know that there are a ton of different food cultures operating on that continent. One, it's a massive continent. And then it seems like there, more so than even in other parts of the world, people have very distinct ethnic groups. So maybe when one city, you would have more diversity than an outsider could ever pick up on just walking in and looking at people. But people who are from there, no. So can you speak to that a little bit? What is it like when you're an African living in Africa? What is your understanding of how diverse the continent is versus when you come to the United States? Well, I think you, you hit upon a very important part of the discussion in that Africa is this huge, massive continent, 54 countries, you know, different um, tribes, different ethnic groups, different religious beliefs and different practices throughout the whole continent. But in many parts of the world, when we speak of Africa, we speak of it as if it is one big country. And people don't often realize that you know, within that continent, there are different countries made up of different people. And, you know, when I lived, I'm originally from Zimbabwe. And when I lived in Zimbabwe, I grew up in that society, knowing that there are other countries that surround me. But within my own country, there were many different tribes. You know, there are two dominant tribes, the Shona and the Ndebele. And then within that, we also have other um, tribes that are of importance as well. So I grew up knowing that even though I was a Zimbabwean, there were certain elements that separated me or distinguished me from the other Zimbabweans that were living in the same country and that there were differences amongst all of us. And so when we think of Africa, when I think of how Africa is discussed in today's society, especially as an African living in America, many people group us together. 
you're African, therefore you are that same person. But growing up, I was led to believe that, yes, I am a, a Zimbabwean, number one. I don't think growing up, I really referred to myself as an African girl. I was always a Zimbabwean girl. But I knew that there were differences across the regions of the same country and that we shared beliefs, we might have shared food, but even as that, there were variations in terms of the dishes that we ate from different tribes and different geographies, just based on sheer location and sheer beliefs and availability of ingredients. So it wasn't always black and white. It was very um, diverse, even from that very beginning. Right. I can imagine. So did you strongly identify with the tribe you were linked to, or was that not really a big thing in your family? So I came from a multicultural family myself. My father is Zimbabwean. My mother is, my grandparents, my mother's parents, my grandfather was from Malawi, and my grandmother was from Zambia. And so growing up in that environment further really um, made me realize how much of a difference person I was to the other people that lived and surrounded me because I have family in Zambia, I have family in Malawi, I have family in Zimbabwe, and we all kind of identified. And so I knew that there were differences, but I always identified and I still identify myself as a Shana girl. Um, Shana is the, the tribe that I am a part of. And so because my father was Shana, I identify as Shana. But because of the multicultural home that I grew up in, I embraced and understood the other cultures that made up that African continent. That is really interesting. So did you identify more with being Shauna too, because that's kind of the community you were raised in, like physically, that's <laughs> yeah, who you were nearest to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I identified as Shauna because that is where we lived. We lived in a place that was called Shauna Land District, which is the land of the Shauna people. And that is where we grew up. That is where we lived. When I went to visit my grandmother, she happened to live in Matebele land, where the Ndebele people lived. And so we kind of got to experience both of the dominant tribes in Zimbabwe and both of the ways that they lived. And as much, I'm not proud of this, but as much as I went to visit my grandmother, I am not fluent in Ndebele. I understand a little bit but I'm not fluent, but oh. it was just the way that I was brought up because I lived in Shana, in Mashana land and we mostly spoke Shana. Oh, see, I was going to ask. So those tribes all have different languages. You don't share a national language. No, we don't share a national um, indigenous language. English became the, the, what do they call it? Official language. And that was the one language that we shared. But across the different tribes, there were different languages. And when you hear somebody speak in Shana and somebody speak in Debele, you hear that those are two very distinct languages. See, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> and you are <laughs> totally right that people just group the whole continent together. And that's a thing that continues to be an issue among the African diaspora as well. So when I say the African diaspora, I mean people of African descent that belong to a multitude of cultural groups and who honestly don't have 
anything definitely in common aside from having a darker complexion. Everybody just tends to be grouped together, and the assumption is everybody eats the same, whereas we don't even all speak the same languages as a first language. Obviously, language and food culture seem to those are two things that are kind of hard to separate. I haven't seen a case where two groups of people have a different language and somehow have a homogenous food culture. That does not seem to be a thing. Food affects the way we relate to the world and so does language. So obviously if you have that much linguistic diversity in Zimbabwe, there's going to be a lot of variety with food culture too. So what led you to be interested in nutrition and dietetics? Is that a field that is common in your family? Is that a popular professional path? <laughs> so I kind of smiled when you said, is that a popular thing in your country? Um, I tell the story of my grandfather and even my mother. When um, I told them that I wanted to be a dietitian. the looks on their faces were priceless. My grandfather <laughs> did not understand that there was such a profession. And he asked me, well, why would you want to do that? You just have to eat. And I had to explain to him the changes in the diets that we've, we've been experiencing and the kind of havoc that they've wreaked on our, on our health. And so he kind of started to get it. My mother, on the other hand, was, she told me not to study dietetics. She told me I would be frustrated by people because the very thing, her exact words were, the very thing that you're telling them not to eat is the very thing that they are going to run for and eat. You know, so don't study nutrition. You'll be very um, frustrated. But it's not a very popular or a common field of study in, in Zimbabwe, even Africa as a whole. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent. But at the time that I went to school, there were not that many programs. However, I am one of the very, very few people that knew that they wanted to be a dietitian from the time when they were like really young. I was oh, seven wow. years old. Well, see, how did you even know what a dietitian was? Because truth be told, I don't think I ever heard the word dietitian before my 20s. Yeah, no. So my friend said to me, I had a friend, we were in the second or third grade, I think. And we happened to be walking on, on the street somewhere. I remember it very vividly. And she told me that her mother was a dietitian and her mother traveled all over the world. And she helped people get better through food. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to be a dietitian because I want to travel and I want to help people eat better. But I didn't understand what that meant until I was picking a major and I found this big word, dietetics, and it kept being associated with nutrition. And so I was in about my 20s as well when I learned that big word. And I decided, yes, this is what I've always wanted to study. And I took it upon myself to go ahead and study despite my mother and my grandfather's, you know, <laughs> confusion about it. <laughs> and your mom, honestly, that was a really good observation that counseling people one-on-one -on -one might be really frustrating because change yeah. is really tough and no one has figured out how to force change because <laughs> sometimes people will pay nope. you and say, make me change. <laughs> like if I give you this money, can you make me do what I'm telling you I want to do? No, I can't. Like none of us know how to do that. We can exactly. uh, walk alongside you. We can help facilitate changes that you have decided to make. 
we can support you, but no, we cannot make you change. And I think that's something that's very difficult for new dietitians to accept or dietitians who are working with people who are really, really ill, who would benefit from making dietary changes, like say someone with kidney failure and seeing that people, it doesn't matter. Like if death is at their door, sometimes that is not going to motivate people to change. So you have to find other ways to find eating well, uh, make it enjoyable to people and present it in a way that feels natural for them. So why did you feel that it was important to start looking at African food culture as it relates to good health and nutrition? No, so after I graduated school, I was actually educated in the United States. And so I learned a Western curriculum. And after I graduated school, I was working as a clinical dietitian and basically discussing the same nutrition that I had been taught in class was the same thing that I, I taught with patients and discussed. And it was one year, I remember I was sitting, it was New Year's Eve, and I was sitting watching television and kind of multitasking of this such a thing with a news with a magazine in front of uh, on my lap and on tv they were talking about the hottest trends in health and uh, the magazine was telling me the top 10 foods to look out for in the new year and i noticed that this, there were no discussions about african foods there was no mentions about african lifestyles and i was really frustrated there was no representation of who I was and the foods that I knew and I identified with. And I started to really think about it and how could I make a change? But the key came for me one summer when I went home to visit. We had a young lady who probably made no more than 200 US dollars a year. And she said to me that she had high blood pressure. And she asked me when I went into the city to go and buy her a packet of, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something that was coming in from China and it was supposed to have very good nutritional benefits. And she said, this is what I need because it's going to heal me. And I started to talk to her about some of our traditional foods and realized that she had started to frown upon our own foods. And she Even said, though well, she was still living near where yes. she was raised, she wasn't living abroad. She was not living abroad. She was still in Africa and she was making, you know, a really low wage and trying to manage her health. And she wanted the food that was imported, that was brought in from somewhere else. And you bring up that point, even though she was in Africa, one thing that we know is that the world in general is changing and the power of the internet and social media is changing the way that we look at food and the foods that we eat as ourselves. So on the African continent, we're experiencing that nutrition transition and more and more people are giving up our traditional foods and going for the Western foods um, instead of those traditional foods. And so to her, she felt like, the traditional foods, the sorghums and the millets that we ate were primitive and not good for her. 
and she preferred to buy the packaged foods that were imported and brought in from somewhere else. In looking at it and in retrospect, she wanted those foods because when she looked at her smart device, those were the foods that popped up. Those were the foods that everybody was talking about. Uh. At that time, nobody was talking about sorghum. Nobody was talking about millet or our indigenous vegetables that grow wild and are rich in nutrients. Everybody was talking about different foods. And so uh. she, was, she didn't see her own food represented. So it didn't link with her that even though my food is healthy, it's not represented in this particular field because nobody has written about it. So when I started, when I moved away from nutrition in the clinical hospital setting in America and started to talk more about African health, I wanted to be that voice. I wanted to tell people who look like me and ate the food that I ate and speak my language that hey, our food is healthy, our food fits, and our food is superior or just as good as some of the foods that the West is selling. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting how things will come in and out of fashion when it comes to food in the West because we are so driven by demand as people become more interested in heirloom seeds and heirloom mm-hmm. vegetables, then they're going mm-hmm. crazy for these more traditional foods that haven't been modified. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that millet was also people food because I'd only seen it sold as bird seed. I literally yeah. didn't know that people cook <laughs> it, and eat it. Like I only learned that probably within the last four years because I've read something about it being good for uh, Graves' disease and a hyperactive thyroid. And I was like, can I eat that? Anyway, but thanks to YouTube, I was able to figure that out. And even when I bought it, it was in an international market. Nothing on it was in English. It was in like the Eastern European section because apparently they have known that you can eat millet for a very long time. And I just had to use the... YouTube directions to figure out how to cook it. So I'm very interested to know what kind of nutrient rich foods we're missing out on that are probably easy to prepare that we could find in the international market that we just don't recognize. Can you start with what does sorghum look like and when do you eat it? Oh, that is a brilliant question. What does it look like? I think you touched upon it. Everybody or many people know what birdseed looks like. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between sorghum and millet because they can look very similar depending on the variety that you're looking at. But it's basically like a whole grain that if I had to say it resembles something that most people would know is probably like couscous or like a type of couscous that you find. Growing up and in many parts of Southern Africa, sorghum is ground to a grain and you use it like a flour and you use it to prepare what we call in Zimbabwe sadza, which is a very thick porridge. It looks like polenta, think of polenta, but made from a different grain. And that's what, that is the staple food, you know, whereas other places might eat rice and potatoes, we eat sadza. And sadza can be made from sorghum or millet or maize, but maize, which is corn, came to Africa many centuries after sorghum and millet were already part of the local cuisine. 
So in my culture, we use sorghum as a porridge for breakfast. You could have it for lunch and dinner because we eat sadza for lunch and dinner. So it could potentially be served at all three of your meals, but in different forms. So is that something that people know how to grind at home or there you buy it as a flour or you know how to do that? (laughs) Yeah. So um, in today's world, of course, with the changes and the nutrition transition and urbanization and industrialization, more and more things are being found. It's more convenient to get uh, ground up flowers in a supermarket or even if you go to the local open markets uh, where you buy your food. But traditionally, people grew their own food and you stored it yourself and you did your own grinding. So within many African cultures, we have what people call the homestead, the local home. In my Shana culture, we call it Kumusha. And Kumusha is the place where you are from. That is where your kin and your family are from. And you can trace your whole generation just by going Kumusha because that is your family. And when you go Kumusha, you are subsistence farmers. You grow most of your own food. And so when I learned how to convert my sogum to a flower, it was Kumosha. Because my aunt, who inherited the land with my uncle, my uncle inherited and he was married to her. And she taught me. We went to the fields. She had some that was already dried. And she taught me how to use like a pestle and motor. And it's oh. not the little ones that we use to make salsa, right? <laughs> so I, I, that's right. That's not those, I, no, not those ones. Now think of that pestle and motor about the size of a toddler, probably about, it's probably about two or three feet high. Oh, that okay. would be the pestle. And then you have a big wooden motor that you use to crush. And so you're crushing grain for, to feed a whole family. And sometimes that family is about 10 people you know, deep. And so everybody has to eat and you have to make enough grain. And so basically toasting the grain before you crush it and then you use it in the pestle and motor and then you have to winnow it in a winnowing basket and make that flour from scratch. You know, so it is. Yeah. What does that do? Yeah. So the winnowing basket is like, how would I describe it? Think of a large flat plate, like a platter. Okay. But it's actually a basket and it's flat and it's open. And what you do is you put in your ground up grain. After you've pounded it, you put it into this basket and you toss the grain into the air and you breathe to blow. You kind of blow away as you're tossing the grain, you're blowing as if you're blowing out birthday candles. And when you blow out, any of the chaff, right, that's okay. embedded in your flour kind of flies away and you're left with your whole grain. Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And that is my assumption is that traditional <laughs> foods used to take up most of your day because that would be like the matriarch of the family's job and she could do that all the time. Like, when did you even have time to learn that? Was that after school or on weekends? No. So on um, holidays, when, whenever we were away from school, my parents used to send us to um, oh, and okay. we, we got to spend some time there every year. I would say for at least a week or two, 
we had to go there. And that's how I learned how to do it. In the city, my mother did have a pestle and motor, but we didn't use it as much as we did Kumusha. So that, that was just part of that. It, it, was, it was learning. It was culture. And that's how I learned about my traditional foods and how to make your own flour, how to make your own peanut butter, you know, how to kill your own chicken. I'm sorry, vegetarians, you know, kill your own chicken and, you know, pluck the feathers from it. It was all part of that. Yeah, 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 I know. Right. (laughs) I've seen that done. So my father was from outside of the city limits in a fairly small town in the South. And so I saw my great grandmother, his grandma, kill a Mm -hmm. chicken. And it, that was it for me. That was as close as I got to helping with that. So they didn't pass that on to us at all. Like I saw the chicken start running with its head cut off and I ran inside and that was it. As much (laughs) as I wanted to know about how that process. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, you know, much like you described though, that is a part of our culture that I think is being lost today to modernization. Not too many children, my own included, exposed to that anymore. And they don't know how to do that. And some of our teenagers and even young adults see that form of life as primitive. And I see it as part of my culture, part of my DNA and who I am. And being a dietitian now, I understand the value of those food practices and the benefits that they have on our health. And even when we talk about the gut microbiome, how we cook our food, how we preserve our food, all part of that learning from being Kumosha is a big force and a driver in our health, but we're losing it. It's becoming more clear what the cost of progress, and that's in air quotes, has really been. At first, it wasn't clear. I don't think that people even understood that your microbiome was such a major factor in your health when we started hyper-sterilizing things. And there's still things that in the U.S. we may process it differently, like eggs, for example, when you go abroad, you see eggs just sitting out. I always thought growing up, the eggs always had to be refrigerated. Well, depending on how they're processed, you had better refrigerate them, but not everybody has to. And so there's so much that goes into processing food for large amounts of people when people aren't subsistence farming anymore that -hmm. you have to do to keep the food safe, but it has unintended consequences. Absolutely. What have you done to try and pass some of this stuff on to your kids? Are you guys living in a big city in the States now, or you kind of live in the suburbs? Well, we we are in the suburbs. Fortunately, we're a little rural. We live in a small rural town, but still close enough to the city. I think anybody coming in from Africa would say this is not rural at all. But by American standards, I, I guess it would be. And it's been a challenge, if I'm being honest, to raise African children in America because the the expectations, their exposures are very different from what I grew up with and how I grew up. And so part of my goal and my role has been to educate. We're still very much an African family and we have we include a lot of African dishes on our table on a regular basis so that my children are exposed to it and they're familiar with it. 
but also just teaching culture and teaching the basics of how do you show respect to your elders? How do we do things within our home? And helping them understand where they come from. My, my kids are, are lucky and very fortunate in that they've had the experience of visiting two African countries. I'm from Zimbabwe and we've been to Zimbabwe. And we've also been to Tanzania, where my husband is from. And so they've had those experiences of going to visit and see how the families live over there. And so that has been very beneficial um, for them. Now, has it been uh, difficult for them to really accept or celebrate their culture? I know that kids have all kinds of different reactions to being different. And a lot of times it's difficult to get children to speak their second language when they're young because they want to be like everybody else. And some people regret that when they get older. How has that been for your children? I've struggled with teaching my children um, Shauna. Part of it in retrospect, I think, was me not being forceful enough in teaching them the language. I always thought that because my husband and I speak to two different African languages, English would be the unifying language. But in retrospect, I think that we could have potentially taught the kids both languages and right. that would have been perfectly fine. So to any young mothers or mothers-to-be that are listening to this that do speak an indigenous language, you know, don't, don't shy away from it. Embrace it and, and take it on because I think it's very much an important component of it. My daughter is now seven years old, and part of what she does now is learn how to speak the language. She, she wants to learn. And so her, she and I have conversations or pseudo conversations in Shauna and I am teaching her the language and amazingly she's picking up really well. My my sons are a little older and they honestly think the language is funny. So when I speak to them in the language they tend to laugh. But hopefully we can converse them one day. Yeah. Um, but I'm very happy to see the progress that my daughter has made. To answer your question about how how do they embrace the language or how do they embrace the um, culture? I, I think that they have been doing really well in terms of embracing everything else that is who we are. One of the best things that I did for them was take them home to Africa so that they can see what the Africa that I grew up with looks like. So that when they hear the movie side of Africa or the uh -huh. other side of Africa that I don't even know, and yet I grew up there, you know, when they hear those stories and those myths and those different beliefs that other people may have, they're able to correct them and tell That's them really what the helpful. true story is. You know, so it, it's, been, it's been a blessing because I think that it helped strengthen them and help them really understand who they are as individuals. That's really helpful for the rest of us. Cause like you said, the world is changing. Everything is becoming, we're so globalized that it really behooves all of us to understand what is and is not true about what's going on in other parts of the world, because you never know where you're going to work or who you're going to work with. I at least have the wherewithal to know when to just not say anything because I know what I've seen on television. Chances are, it's not in any way connected to reality. So I try not to ask people crazy questions and just wait until, uh, let them lead the way. You know, one thing I really do like 
that they have most people study in dietetics and nutrition is letting your communication with other people be led by the other person listening more than you speak. So that kind of helps you keep your foot out of your mouth sometimes because the stuff that we see on TV about Africa is just completely inaccurate nine times out of 10 and is reflective of a small portion of the population's experience and just really isn't inclusive. We don't understand how people are enjoying and using technology there. I would have assumed someone who like that woman you mentioned earlier, who's making like 200 or so dollars a month would not have access to social media and would not be influenced by what's online. Cause I just assumed at that price point, like who would have a phone? So it's actually $200 per year. Okay, a well, year, right? I guess I just okay. <laughs> we, right, we 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 can't fathom it where where we're living, right? But that that is the reality of many people. But and she has oh yes. So one thing is that Africa is projected to have the largest use of data in the world. I think within the next twenty to twenty five years, if not sooner. So the the growth of communications and even the internet is great and it has even even the person when I go Kumusha I can still speak to my cousins that are there because they all have cell phones and they're able to communicate that way so that is the power of the world wide web and what it does Um, while they might not be able to go on on a regular basis a lot of them are on Facebook and WhatsApp and whatever information is shared by some individual in, you know, Connecticut can be communicated to somebody that is in the middle of Matopo in Zimbabwe, you know, and they can listen to that. That It just shows how global the internet is. So yeah, there is a lot of internet and data usage in Africa as a whole. It is expensive, but people find ways to get it. Wow. Oh, wow. That is totally fascinating. I know my family in Cuba recently got internet access and it's just Mm -hmm. so different from before because we, years ago in the nineties, we might not know somebody was dead for years. Like somebody might go visit and find out that a relative was dead because it took that long for us to get information back and forth. Whereas now what we can talk every week so fascinating. I guess we're all paying different prices for data because if I was making $200 a year here in the States, I would not have a phone. So, right. Yeah. I mean, and cost of living, right? And I think there's, the lifestyles are a little different as well, you know, and they might not have, you know, the iPhone 11 or any kind of fancy phone. But what they have is what they think they can afford at that particular time. But data is expensive, but it, it, it does travel. Most people, I shouldn't say most, but more people than you think have access okay. to um, c- communication. That's fascinating. So what things about African cuisine in general? Well, on your site, the African Nutrition Pot, am I saying it right? I keep African wanting to- pot, There you go. I African- keep, Gotcha. That's okay. 
are you focused on cuisine from all over the continent that is very nutrient rich or how do you decide what recipes to focus on? So one thing, even though we are very diverse on the African continent and we have a wide array of dishes, even within Zimbabwe, you will find 20 different ways to make stew. There's no one way to, to make a particular dish. One thing I have learned is that throughout the African continent, we share ingredients. Cassava is still cassava, no matter where you go. The difference is how you're going to prepare it. And when I initially started, I kind of gravitated to what I knew. You know, I know Zimbabwean food. And so I started talking about Zimbabwean food until I started interacting with other people from other cultures, which is one of the beauties of America, is that I'm able to interact with people from other, other cultures. And as we spoke, I realized that, wait, you eat this too. A friend of mine from Nigeria was in my kitchen and she's like, no, I think we make this. You know, I think we call this Amala. And she tasted it and she's like, oh yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, but oh, wow, that's not what we call it. You know, and so having that conversation and that dialogue. And I realized that I needed to ensure that the message of our food, our African heritage food is healthy, needed to reach a wider population than just my Zimbabwean brothers and sisters. And so I started to focus on food of the African diaspora. And I say the African diaspora because it spreads beyond the African continent. Like if I were to go to Cuba or the Caribbean or even in England or America, I'm going to find people of African descent kind of with the same ingredients in their cabinets as they go through. That's um, interesting. So what ingredients do you find that people still use in the African uh, diaspora, sorry, African diaspora in the United States? Because it's interesting how food culture is passed on, depending on what things you have access to, some things are forgotten. So it feels like a lot of times African-Americans that were here because their ancestors were kidnapped and enslaved here, they feel a little lost as far as what is our food culture really. But do you notice some things that obviously came from the continent? Yeah, I think when I think of more Southern food, or to be specific, when I went to Louisiana and looking at some of their cooking techniques and some of the ingredients that they use, I think the most obvious is okra, right? Okra is an African ingredient that came over. And the way that it is used in Louisiana as in gumbo is very much similar to how some African countries make their stews by adding Ah. the okra to a pot full of beef and different um, foods. And so we do see those similarities of of cooking methods and ingredients. You know, we talk about sweet potatoes. If I go to the Caribbean and we talk about plantain and cassava or taro, those are all foods that are shared within the African diaspora. And for many people, for many African immigrants living in America, that is how we connect with our roots through food. And so we tend to find those foods in your international um, stores. Usually it's a small mom and pop shop that will cater to our flavors and our taste. And we, we 
buy those because they are the taste of home and they are the taste that remind us of our culture and who we are. And as we have children, food is one of the most important ways that we're able to help our children connect with who they are. And so we'll keep some of those ingredients um, within our pantries. And I think it's also important to note that some of our, the stores that we go to are not your Afro-Caribbean stores, but it might be your Filipino store that ca- carries the uh. same ingredients as you do. You know, So for instance, I love sweet potato leaves, which many people are not familiar with as a vegetable, but they are edible and they are a vegetable, you know, and oh, it is I, um, the sweet potato plant or it's just called that. No, it is from the sweet potato plant. OK, I didn't know you could eat that. It is edible, you know, so you, you'll find those in Filipino stores because the oh. Filipinos also eat the sweet potato leaves. But finding those foods that are similar in your culture and sometimes you have to improvise and making sure that you you get the ingredients that you need. The good news about being in the United States and the good news are because of um, the internet and the wide variety of foods that you're able to purchase online is that it's becoming easier to find some of those ingredients from home. What are some of the flavor profiles that you use a lot in your recipes? Right. In in my home, I as I mentioned, I'm married to an East African guy from Tanzania. And um, they have very much of an Indian flair and Indian Arabian influence in their flavor profiles. So a lot of cumin, a lot of coriander, cloves are used in the cooking in, in my home. Many people associate African food with heat and spice, and it just depends on the region that you're from. I tend to find some West African dishes really spicy because, and when I say spicy, it's the heat, you know, they are hot, right? Right, Because of the ingredients that they use. So throughout the continent, there are different flavor profiles that you'll find. And a lot of them are influenced by location. Countries that have a coast to them were part of the spice trade. Uh, with the different traders that came, the Arab traders, the Indian traders. And so you'll find that a lot of their foods include a lot of spices and a lot of flavor to them. That's the coastal um, countries. As you go inland, such as in Zimbabwe, we are a landlocked country. We didn't get as much as the spices coming in through the spice, um, the spice trade. And so <laughs> I tease that we use salt and pepper and peanut butter because we put peanut butter in everything. <laughs> okay, I'm now like, that is um, the one recurring thing I see <laughs> online. If it says African whatever stew, it's always got peanuts in it. Yeah, no, that is, it is so much so. I think there is one one peanut stew that tends to make its rounds. Okay. <laughs> I think it's either like a chicken, it's either chicken or it's either a, a vegetable stew that is kind of made in a peanut sauce. But I, 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 I don't think that is representative of most African cuisines. Gotcha. Um, we do use peanuts for sure. We do. In Zimbabwe, we use peanuts in everything. You know, we put peanut butter and rice and, you know, in cereal and everything, except in chocolate. <laughs> oh, well, um, how do you put, how do you do that in rice? Is it like a sauce or? No, yeah. You, you basically, it's mainly like your brown rice. It's like we use a traditional rice, which is oh. a whole grain 
rice. I, I would say it's a drier, grittier type of rice that we use. And you make it like you would normally make your, your rice. And then you make a peanut water paste and you add it to the rice and kind of mix it up. It, it is delicious. It is very delicious. And um, you, you kind of enjoy that with your vegetables. Some people even add some meat to it. But it's just a staple traditional food that, that we use. So because we only have salt and pepper and also some bird's eye chilies in our spice profiles, I always say, well, peanut butter is something that is also very popular. And one of my friends actually says, yeah, I think peanut butter is a spice. So <laughs> I'm going to agree with that. But yes, yeah, so, so, but looking at that, I think the flavor profiles of African cuisine are very different. Yeah. Um, what you get in the Horn of Africa is not the same as what you get in Southern Africa or West Africa, yeah. which is the beauty of the continent. You know, there's just a lot of diversity and a lot of opportunity to taste different foods mm-hmm. um, and they're delicious foods too. Now, can you recommend an easy, easy recipe for us to get our feet wet with something that's one of your favorites that maybe is from Zimbabwe, but it's easy. (laughs) Emphasis on easy. Easy, right? Okay. Because I was talking about peanut butter, one of my favorite foods to eat. So we were talking about sweet potato leaves and I know most people will not be able to find them and most people wouldn't recognize them when they, if they saw them in the supermarket. Traditionally, we use pumpkin leaves for this particular dish. But in the Americas, I've learned to use spinach instead of pumpkin leaves. And you can Does it taste similar pasta. to you? Or is it? It has, this, it, it has a similar consistency. Okay. But the flavor is a little different. But it gives the same consistency. And for the unknowing individual, they will think they're eating the, peanut, the pumpkin leaves as opposed to spinach. Okay. So basically, it's, you know how we have cream spinach? Yes. So instead of cream spinach, you have peanut butter spinach. Mm. So you cook your spinach, you drain it, reserve the liquid because you know that nutrients are all in that liquid, right? And then you take some peanut butter and you add like a tablespoon of peanut butter, depending on how, many, how much um, spinach leaves you have. You put your, mix your peanut butter with that, the reserves from your spinach. Mix it, make a paste, add some tomatoes in there, and a little bit, I like, I like, like red-eye pepper. And so add a little bit of that in there and mix it, add your spinach back, and you have a dish. I'm going to have to look up, I'm going to Google pumpkin leaves and sweet potato leaves so I can see what I'm looking I for. Think- now, before okay. the call, cool. you mentioned that the... African immigrant population is pretty high in the United States. I figured that at least some of our schools have African students, but can you tell me more about the numbers that you've heard about? I I can't tell you the numbers right off off the top of my head, but one thing I can tell you is that the African immigrant population is amongst the highest growing um, populations in the United States, as in new immigrants coming to America. Many of these immigrants are coming for work opportunities, for schooling opportunities, mainly higher education opportunities. And they're settling, I think we have a a large population in the Washington, D.C., Maryland area, 
And then um, on the East Coast, it's mainly Seattle and California that have a large immigrant population, African immigrant population. But throughout the United States, you are finding African immigrants moving in. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see the numbers of African immigrants steadily increase. Wow. And I know in Atlanta, I meet a lot of Ethiopians and Nigerians, but that everybody else is just like sprinkled. And I see businesses that are owned by Ethiopians and Nigerians are everywhere as doctors and professors and everything. But they they seem like they were among the first to get here. So I don't know that their numbers are still high coming in. Everybody seems like they've been here a long time. But that's really interesting. So definitely we want to make our kids feel at home by looking at incorporating these flavors as well into the menu, especially since it sounds like whole grains are like the basis and the vegetables and proteins there, but not as the main character like it is in lots of different cuisines. Yes, I think we have, you know, we talk about plant-forward diets. And when you look at the traditional African cuisine, it is indeed plant-forward. I I remember, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, growing up when my mother used to prepare the meal, she would count the number of pieces of meat she would put in the pot by the number of people that she was preparing for, you know. And so if it was five people in the family today, it was five pieces of meat in the pot because that is just how we, we ate the bulk of the meal was vegetables and your grain food. That is what kind of fed you. You know, right. meat was there, but it wasn't, it was never center of the plate. Right. It was always an accompaniment. And that is reminiscent of many um, traditional African diets. I, I do think that as we look at school nutrition and as, you know, we expand the menus, incorporating some of those different foods and different ingredients will actually help students not only feel at home, but also help them realize that their culture is important. Their culture yeah. matters. You know, I, I feed my children African food. And as my children are growing older, I'm seeing it not become a favorite anymore because of the influences that they have around them. And so it, it'll be nice to have them, oh, we eat this at home and it is also served at school because I think school plays a very important role in how children see and perceive food, whether it is the teacher or whether it is the cafeteria, little minds are being formed and shaped at that time. So I think the schools play a very important role in preserving that cultural heritage as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely want to be on the right side of history when it comes uh, to that sort of thing, because it really benefits all of us when we celebrate diversity. We can learn so much from each other. And being plant forward is so supported by science at this point. But sometimes it's difficult to present it in a way that is palatable for children. So it's good to see what have other people done? What are other super popular dishes that, you know, are probably going to go over well with children? Because I do find a lot of kids leap vegetables in a super stew that they won't eat when it's standalone. But then I don't have a ton of 
those recipes to pull from all the time. So where can we find your database of recipes so we can look for ideas for what we can bring into our schools or start testing with our kids? You know, so I no longer have a database of, of recipes actually on the website. What I do have is a database of African foods so that if you're trying to introduce a new food and you're not really sure, you know, what is this amaranth and what exactly does it do for you, people can kind of go to that particular database. But there are a lot of wonderful African bloggers and African foodies and food experts on social media that I think can provide a lot of context and a lot of recipes online. Okay, excellent. And where do we find you online? You can find me. My website is theafricanpotnutrition.com. That is my website. I am on Instagram at African Pot Nutrition, as well as Facebook. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Dahlia, and thank you for all the work that you do to keep our kids healthy and strong. I appreciate it. I learned so much in just one hour speaking with our guests today. I hope you got a lot out of it as well. If you already knew about all of those foods, good for you. You're ahead of a lot of us. Now, next week is the break week. And then the week following, we will be speaking with a guest from Australia and learning about food culture there and also child nutrition there. I hope that you will join me. See you next time.